Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, I think you have to agree that was out of ordinary. Yeah, how much fun did you guys have this morning? Thanks, Steve. I had so much fun, I feel like, uh, you know, back home you'd have to knock out a tooth and have a jug with you in order to be able to sing those songs, but uh, I'm glad we get to do that in church, aren't you? Uh, Hopefully, it gets you thinking about heaven. Those songs are intended to uh, remind us of what it is that um, God not only has done for us, but what he has planned for us. Uh, Heaven is real. And I was reminded this last week, I had a couple of friends um, who are going through some hard times. Uh, One who was facing the death of a child, and another who is facing some hardships brought on just by the seasons that we are in. Uh, And in both situations, the only answer that actually meets the soul and can transform the situation is that there is a God who's aware, and there's a heaven that is real. Amen? And that's what we're here. We, we get to worship and shout and uh, be a part of, man, so, so much fun music. But the reason our hearts can be happy in a season like this is that God has the control, not us. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be back in the book of Daniel. Uh, we, the last time that we were in the book of Daniel, we were looking at his prayer. That song was just uh, reminding you of that. But now we're coming to a section in the book of Daniel Uh, where he takes us on a little bit of a mental journey, and it's going to be important for us to be sharp. I do want to remind you uh, of a a couple of things that are going on at the church as you turn there. So I'm encouraging you week after week to bring what we call a paper Bible. That would be one that looks a lot like this, okay? Uh, The way you turn this on, You do that. You can look in the table of contents. That's old school. It's towards the front of the book, and you can find where Daniel is. Uh, If you have electronic devices, that is okay. That's not sin. It's not a problem. Uh, We just know that you're one Google update away from losing all of your material, right? And so the other reason I think it's important for you to have some of these things in a paper Bible, imagine a moment where all of your electronics go down, where everything around the world gets shut down. Imagine a moment where the world is in chaos and you once again are driven into your homes. Do you think you can imagine any moment like that? What are you going to have with you there to remind you of your study of the Word of God? Uh, A paper Bible is not required in order for you to be a Christian, but it's encouraged at least from this pulpit so that you can have these memory trails. And you can walk down through these. The reason I emphasize that in particular on this morning is uh, we we are actually going to be studying some things that will happen. And there will be some people who hear about these things coming out of the Word of God and will ignore them. A a a Bible with a paper trail, a a Bible. A Bible, I'm just trying to shorten the message for you, with a paper trail left behind for somebody to pick up is going to be a blessing in that day, I truly believe. So Daniel chapter 7, 
Uh, by the way, we are starting uh, something new in this season. At the end of this month, uh, we're restarting Lagos. Uh, that's a study of God's Word. But the way we're tackling it this year is at the end of each month, we're going to have an opportunity for you to sign up with questions that you're bringing from the Bible. We'll tackle those here on site. It'll be on a Wednesday. Uh, we'll provide next week uh, for you a phone number that uh, you can send your questions into. We're going to do two things. We're going to take a look at how you can study the Word of God and know for sure what it is saying. And secondly, we're going to tackle some of the questions that just come up as you all are reading the Bible and you're reading in different sections, but you're wanting to know, hey, what does this mean? This is so troubling to me. And we'll tackle those in real time rather than waiting until we eventually get to that study in the Word. And so we're going to try to both meet the current questions that you have, but also leave a wider trail. How is it that I can study the Word of God for myself, which is what God says His children should be able to do? How can I study it and know for sure what it says? If it's exciting to you to sign up for that, next week we'll uh, give you the phone number you can sign up for. Uh, we'll put that um, uh, in front of you so that you can uh, be a part of it, but it's going to be at the end of each month until summertime. Uh, that's my advertisement for this morning. Daniel chapter 7. One last uh, caveat. We, uh, we, we've shared with some folks that were studying through the book of Daniel, and some have actually chuckled. They said, well, you're just covering the first six chapters, right? Once you get into Daniel 7 through 12, there's a lot of conjecture. There is a lot of pictures, and so what I do want you to do, I know that we're just coming out of the season. You just got your kids back into school. You just are recovering from eating all of the treats, and your mind might be a little sludgy, okay? I do want you to take a moment and just get some clarity and say, Lord, will you give me direction as we read these passages? I believe it's super important for us to wrap our minds around this. Uh, and I, I do believe also there should be no fear for a pastor or a believer to read any part of Scripture. In fact, Scripture was written to bring light to the darkness, not to leave you in darkness. Amen? Amen should always go there, all right? God wrote something down because in his heart he wanted you to know something. He didn't want to leave you more confused. That's why he wrote this down. Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to read the first 14 verses and then we'll unpack the rest of the chapter together. Let's stand as we read. <clears throat> it says this, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, um, just in your mind, note the timing, okay? When is this that he got this vision? It says, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. And he wrote down the dream, and here is a summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, as I was watching, suddenly four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, and four huge beasts came from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings, and I continued watching until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. And after this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard 
with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening, dreadful, and incredibly strong with large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly... In this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set up in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Uh, Just a side note, note in most of your Bibles, this gets indented. Remember, anytime that something happens in Scripture, Old Testament or New, as it gets indented, it turns to uh, a type of, uh, it's a memory device. Something is happening here that in the original language would make it easier to remember. He wants you to get this. As I kept watching, thrones were in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. And his throne was a flaming fire, and its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. And the courts... The court was convened, and books were opened. And I watched them because the sound of the arrogant words of the horn that was speaking. And as I continued watching, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, given over to the burning fire. For the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. And I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming from the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Do you believe that that is true? You may be seated. Now, just a thought, Uh, this morning I know that we have uh, some that are here that have uh, come to church and you uh, were invited by a friend and you're just spiritually curious and you just heard this passage, all right? I I want you to hang on. The scriptures actually declare some things that will happen in the future and the reason that it uses the language that it does, apocalyptic language, is not to confuse you but to cause you to slow down and not read too quickly over it. It is intended for you to meditate on it and say, how can these things be? Now, what's about to happen in verse 15 is Daniel is about to say the same thing you would say as you were just reading just that section of Scripture. He's like, what in the world is this? And an angel tells him, these are what these things are to be. Before we get to that, I want to highlight a a couple different ways now. So uh, I've addressed those in the room who might be curious and you're saying, man, this is crazy. Scripture talks about the future, and it's a future that you will see beginning to happen. For the believer, if you're a believer in here, 27% of Scripture is prophetic. 
if you just blow over it and say, well, who can know what that's really talking about? In the end, we win. Uh, you are throwing away one-third of Scripture. God did not intend for it to be darkness, but light. You have to have some way to wrap your mind around these things. There are three main views of what we call the millennium or the end of the age. Three main views within Christianity, and I'm just speaking to those of you who have taken time to study it. Uh, the three most popular right now are amillennialism. That means that all of this is just figurative language. There really isn't any millennium. There is no time on earth where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Uh, Postmillennialism, that is that somehow Jesus will arrive back on earth, but it's after we have completed um, the work. The, the church will win out and succeed in bringing God's rules and laws to the world, and then Christ will arrive. And premillennial, uh, that is that these things are going to unfold in a way where God not only sees the destruction of the nations, but he stops it installs Jesus as the actual king, and puts everything right. Um, if you want a good picture of that, in the notes that we have for this Sunday morning, I actually have done a better job of describing that. We have those three positions, their strongest way of proclaiming them in there, uh, and, and a few uh, pieces of information you can hang on to. You can get those online. Uh, there's an addendum even, I think, in the notes for this morning. All three of these views, I want you to hear this, are orthodox. If you're in here and you've come from an all-millennial or a post-millennial view, you're a believer. This isn't a debate about whether or not you're saved. It's just how we wrap our minds around these passages. You've got to hear this, folks. If we cannot have these discussions with each other, if you just stomp your foot and say, I'm going to remove myself from talking about you if you don't see things my way, we will be ineffective at coming to a true knowledge of Scripture. When you come to a conundrum... You walk through it with brothers. Amen? Brothers and sisters, we walk through that. All three are orthodox. All three are trying to deal with scriptural conundrums. All three must arrive at some place where there's some mystery. I just want to give you really quickly, before we dive into Daniel 7, why I'm premillennial. It's in your notes. Premill. P. The promises of God. God actually told Abraham certain things that were going to happen, and it seems that he says, you're not only going to be a blessing to the nations, the nations will see it and be glad. Uh, he made promises to David that there would be a ruler sitting on his throne that would rule the nations. Promises made literally to Abraham and to David about a real land, a real king, and a real season here. So promises of God. Uh, secondly, resurrection. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. There's going to be a resurrection of believers to come and rule and reign with Jesus. Note that when you read Revelation 20 on your own. The earliest view, E-P-R-E, it's the earliest view. Early Christianity, first 300 years, there really was no other view other than the premillennial view until origin. Um, it, the, uh, as the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, all millennialism came into uh, view. It became the view of some of the early reformers, but this is the earliest view. M, the most natural reading of prophetic language. Once again, 27% of Scripture. As you just read through it, if you just read through it and say, what do you think this is saying? The most natural way to read it and understand it is the premillennial view. And that is the view that Jesus is going to come again and rule and reign. I want you to also note just 
if you're coming from the outside, the Hindu, Hindu Vedas, the Quran, um, the Book of Mormon, none of them have prophetic language. And for sure, nothing that has been fulfilled. We've already seen a great portion of prophecies come true. We will see some of that this morning. Most natural reading. Last three, in, in Revelation chapter 20, it actually says that Satan will be in prison for a thousand years. He won't be able to uh, reign and deceive the nations. The most natural way to understand that is that right now, he's not bound. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but it is possible to take a look around at the world and see the fingerprints of a satanic being, okay? He's not bound right now. He's able to deceive. He's called, the, he's called actually the accuser of the brethren. He's called the God of this age. Right now, he's called that in Scripture. The imprisonment of Satan. Last two. A literal thousand years. Revelation 20 says it'll be a thousand years. And in order to emphasize it, it says it again and again and again and again and again and again. Seven times it says it'll be a thousand years. Now, if God emphasized something seven times, it's kind of his perfect number. You ought to listen, okay? A thousand years. And finally, location on earth. Isaiah 24, Zechariah 14 give a very specific direction. You must look to something happening here on earth. God is going to put things right here. Not just in eternity, but here. That's why I'm premillennial. Um, there are some good men who I respect. Tremper Longman in, in particular is one. And he says that there are so many different ways to take these passages that it's probably best for us not to come up with any view. That's literally what he says. That instead we should just understand that in the end God wins. Uh, I'm not satisfied with that answer. So how is it that we come to these conclusions? Let's dive in. Four things, real quick, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Are you guys feeling awake? Yeah? Okay. Now, by now, your brain might already be starting to hurt, but just get, make some room in there, okay? Throw out your last Netflix show binge, whatever is in there right now. You don't have to remember what's happening to those people. You do have to know this. Just make some room in there, all right? Open the closet up. Let's take a look. Starting... In verse 15, we see the rise of the kingdoms of man. We're going to look at, at four things. The rise of the kingdoms of man, the rise of an arrogant man, the rise of the son of man, and then a terrified man, okay? Those four things, we're going to tackle them quickly. I'm hoping you'll be swimming in information. You'll go home excited to read your Bible. Or that you'll be afraid and you'll turn to Jesus. Those are my two hopes, okay? Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me. And the visions of my mind, they terrified me, and I approached one of those who was standing by, and I asked him to clarify all of this. Yes, please do. So he let me know how the interpretation of these things is. And it says, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High must receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one who is different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring and crushing and trampling with its feet whatever was left. And I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of those horns fell. And the horn had eyes and a mouth, and it spoke arrogant words. 
and it looked bigger than all the others. And as I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones. It was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived, and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For time had come, and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. And this is what he said, that fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth different from all the other kingdoms. It'll devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. Let's just pause right there. Now remember, uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a, a view, a different angle of Daniel chapter 2. On your own, go back and read Daniel chapter 2 where a king has this vision about kingdoms that will come. And he was the head of gold and then there would be one of silver and then one of bronze and then uh, one of iron and then toes that would come out of that kingdom of iron. It was a statue of a man. And it was a view from man's side of these kingdoms that would happen. Now, this is a restatement of those from heaven's view. Four different beasts that will take over. We only have time this morning to just describe a little bit what's happening here. I would encourage you to do your own research. But in, cha- in verse 4, um, it says that the first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings, and I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Uh, this is a picture of Babylon. Uh, we get that because in Daniel chapter 2, um, the king of Babylon is actually told, this is the answer. This first kingdom is Babylon. What happens in Babylon that is unique? Why is all of a sudden there an emphasis on him turning into a man? Well, remember, the head of gold, the man that was, the king that was ruling Babylon at that time was Nebuchadnezzar. He gets so full of himself that he goes crazy. And in chapter 2, we see a picture of him going crazy, all right? Uh, That happens in just a, a few short chapters, He goes crazy. He, for seven years, is wandering around like an animal until his mind was restored. And his mind is restored. We actually see him worshiping the living God. He's set up on his feet and, once again, is a man. They would have seen this as a picture of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. This is a picture of Babylon. Now, I think think we have that line with wings. Did you see him there? This is a picture that Daniel would have seen coming up out of the sea. Um, Second beast, verse 5, Medo-Persia. It says, and then suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like the beast. It was raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. Um, Some have tried to divide these different beasts into Media and then Persia, but the only time that that there was a great controlling interest was when Medo-Persia came together. They actually come together. They become a massive conglomerate. Uh, They end up joining forces, become one great big nation, and underneath them, they do end up ponderously taking over all of that area that Nebuchadnezzar once had ruled and reigned. The chest of silver, not quite as powerful in ruling as Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, In this one, the picture of a bear, not the king of beasts, but still a monstrosity. Uh, And he is moving, um, moving things forward, devouring much flesh. It talks about the way that they would go about it, a million man army, uh, thousands and thousands that would Uh, just jump off of a cliff in order to uh, please their king. 
Third beast, though, rising up out of there is Greece, verse 6. And after this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared, and it was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, uh, picturing, once again, the speed, the swiftness in which it would take over. And it had four heads, and it was given dominion. Greece, you go back to chapter 2 of Daniel, the torso of bronze, four heads. Why four heads? It was very quickly uh, that you see Alexander the Great taking over the known world at the time. He blasts onto the scene. He takes it over. By the time that he's 27, there's no more worlds to conquer. He gets drunk. He kills himself, in essence, through his celebrations. And the kingdom goes to his four generals. So four swift wings. They take over the four directions on the compass. Alexander is at the head of their armies, but they take over the known world. He disappears off the scene. And that entire kingdom is given over to his four commanders. It is a famous story. It's well known in history. That's why four heads on this beast rather than one. I think we got that picture up there. That's a scary looking creature. Uh, Don't shoot at that. Just run. (laughs) Verse 7, then we have Rome. Now, I want you to see that in verse 7 and verse 8, I believe what we have is Rome and Rome 2.0. Verse 7, and after this, while I was watching in the night vision, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. Notice that it's not like anything else that exists. It devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left, and it was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly... In this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and mouth that was speaking arrogantly. I think we have a picture of this here. It's a beast that's not like anything else. Here's this beast. Daniel sees, he's like, I have no idea what that is. And you'll notice there's three horns that have been knocked off on this little artist rendition here. And there's one horn in the middle there with eyes like a human and a mouth on it. Of course, Daniel's going to be confused. He's like, what in the world is this? Does it have any real meaning or uh, did I just have too much of the king's food? I think the reason that it's uh, described this way, you have a trampling beast. I shared with you before that Rome was different from all the others. It ruled with a rod of iron. The peace that it it brought, it brought through ferocity. But it did trample down all of the national boundaries. But since Rome, we have not had a worldwide leading king. Since Rome, we've not had a nation that has been over everything. What you do have, though, are the little remnants of Rome everywhere. I shared this with you before. When you go to uh, Germany, you hear about a Kaiser. That's their way of saying Caesar. He's the ruler of their area. A czar in Russia. If you go to England or you go to America or you... Uh, go into the other places in the world, you'll have things like an eagle that's on the staff or senators that are leading or a representational government that is uh, espoused. These are all things that come out of Rome and they begin to go all the way around the world. The remnants of the Roman way of leading are still with us. It's a beast unlike any other and that it tramples everything down and then it just disappears from the scene and eventually... Ten leaders rise up as a result of the energy that this trampling beast has left behind. It's indistinct. The essence in this chapter is, remember, as the description is going on, 
They don't take time with the other beasts. It just focuses on this one beast. It stomps everything down, and then all of a sudden it's ten kings that are leading instead of one. It's focused on people that are leading rather than nations. By the way, I think we're beginning to see some of the the edges of what that could be even in our time. Do you think that there are some people who, say, running Facebook or Microsoft or running major financial institutions can change the mind of entire nations or entire people group or have an influence over individuals, what they would know, what they would believe, or what they would do? Is it possible that there could be arrogant people, I'm just asking you this, in the world? Arrogant people that would want to tell you how to live, what to do, and how to think. Not based on national boundaries, but based on power. In the end, big kingdoms are replaced by big personalities. And the question I would have is, is this believable? I'm only going to give you one picture, just food for thought. The UN commissioned a statue. They commissioned a piece of art that they wanted to put on display if the nations were to come together and provide peace and safety. What is an image that they would use? This is the image that they use. This is revealed in, 19, or in 2021. It's sitting in front of the UN right now. It was installed as a piece of art, a beast. If you read in Revelation chapter 13, just, just a side note here, really quickly. It says, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, which is a picture of the nation's um, uh, see Psalm 65 for that. Out of all of the nations, a sea, it says, and it had uh, horns on its head and stuff. It said, and the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave the beast its power. Here you have a leopard with non-leopard teeth, bare paws. You have the nations who said they had no reference to the Bible. They weren't trying to get a biblical revolution. They actually asked a different group of people coming out of pagan understandings to draw up what they thought peace and safety would look like if the nations were to come together. This is the image they chose. Do you believe that God can see the spirit of the age in advance and say they're going to think things like this? The rise of the kingdoms of man. We have another thing here. I know this is just tickling your fancy. You're still awake. You're with me. The rise of the arrogant man, verses 19 through 26. This is really critical. Verse 19, it says, well, I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast and the one that was different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring and crushing and trampling with his feet whatever was left. The emphasis is not on what it looked like because it's unlike any others. It leaves behind an indistinct path. All it does is trample. I wanted to know about the ten horns on the head. And in particular, he says, as I was watching this verse uh, 21, This horn waged war against the holy ones that was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived, super important, and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. There's the rise of an arrogant man. Um, Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom, from this indistinct kingdom. And another king, different from all the previous ones, king, by the way, doesn't mean that he has to have a kingdom uh, physically, but it means a great leader, all right? 
different from the previous ones, will rise after them and will subdue three kings. And he will speak words against the Most High. He will oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws. And the holy ones will be handed over for time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away, completely destroyed forever. And the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdom under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. Here he says this horn that you see rising up is going to be, after this nation kind of disappears, ten kings will rise up. And one arrogant leader is going to uproot three of these leaders. So there's ten kings that will arise. Ten leaders that will be serving at the same time. And one arrogant leader will uproot three of them. And how is he known as arrogant? That's a violent word in the original language. It's a word that speaks blasphemies and arrogance and words of attack. What kind of person will this be, this arrogant leader? Just a couple of markers for you. He's a leader that will arise when the ten kings rule, coinciding with them. Uh, He'll be arrogant. He will hate God. It says here that he will be uh, speaking words against the Most High and oppress the ones who serve the Most High. He will hate God. He will want to change religious festivals and laws. He will want everything that has to do with anything that doesn't worship him to be removed. He'll make war with the saints. He will see believers as the enemy or as the ones that are getting in the way of the world peace he wants to present. It says that he will rule completely for three and a half years. Same terminology that's used all the way through the book of Revelation in other places of Scripture. Time, times, and half a time. You don't have to do very much research to say this is just the way that the Hebrews would designate a year, times, two more years, and half a time one half of a year. So three total years. Don't get hung up on how creative he is writing this. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said four score, and, you know, he he can use that for a a designation of a certain lot of number. We can listen to Abraham Lincoln and say, oh, I know what he's talking about. Daniel uses time, times, and half a time for three and a half years. This wicked ruler is going to lead for three and a half years until his reign is ended by the judgment of God. Why is it the judgment of God? Because he becomes so powerful that there's no other engine that could take him over. He takes over the world, and the world votes him in. That's what Scripture indicates. Democratically appointed, we, we begin to look to this arrogant person and say, because you're providing peace and safety, because wealth is coming from you, because we see things that we want coming from you. In other places in Scripture, it says that if it was possible, he would deceive even the very elect. We're going to want him to lead. But he hates God. He wants to change religious festivals. He wants people to worship him. In the end, this arrogant man and the arrogance of man is ended by the Ancient of Days. I just want you to pause for a moment and say, is it, is it possible that the nations would want to worship some pagan person? I've shared this with you before. I'd have you look it up on your own. There was a pagan festival to celebrate the, the tunnel that arrived in Stuttgart, uh, Switzerland. And this is just, uh, if you're online, we can't show this picture to you, so this is just for the people in the room. 
strong encouragement. We'd love for you to be here and join us. Um, but this is an actual picture. This goat man, satanic goat man, is coming out of the tunnel. Uh, I, I can't show you the video, actually, because of the vileness of some of the things that he performs. It is a pagan ritual. Sitting in the audience are the leaders of the European Union that came together in order for this tunnel to arrive so that commerce would be able to free, freely flow from one set of nations to another. It was a huge deal. They had tried to build this tunnel multiple times. Hundreds of people had their lives affected. There were many that died trying to do this. They felt that there was an opposition that was spiritual that stopped them from coming through. So how do they celebrate this tunnel being completed and trade and commerce coming and wealth flowing to the people? They celebrate with a pagan festival. This goat man comes out shrieking, screaming, performing lewd acts. In the process of their display that they put on in front of the European Union, these European bobbleheads come walking out. They get their power from this beast. He dies. He comes back to life. He creates a progeny that looks just like him, another beast, that then gives power to the nations, and they all run around rejoicing because wealth has finally arrived. There was no reference to scripture that had nothing to do with the Bible, they said. This is just coming out of pagan religion. And they show the leaders from those nations cheering and participating in a festival, worshiping a beast that brought them prosperity. This is five years ago. Look it up on your own. Some of you already are. <laughs> pagan festival at Stuttgart's Tunnel in Switzerland. You can see the video. It'll shock you. The question I have is, is it believable that the nations will do this? Folks, it's not just believable. God said that this kind of spirit would exist in the end times, and it's happening, okay? Ignore it at your peril. Final thought, the rise of the Son of Man. Now, this should give us goosebumps and rejoice. Remember, this is the section that's indented. This is the section he says, memorize this, put this in your mind, this carry with you whenever you run into all the other hardships that I describe, this is the part I want you to remember, he says. The Son of Man arrives. By the way, 88 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, and it points back to this passage to get all of its understanding. Who is the Son of Man? I kept watching thrones are set in place, the Ancient of Days, that can only be God the Father, took his seat, his clothing was white, hair was, uh, on his head was like white wool, his throne was a flaming fire and, and wheels blazing. Just read Ezekiel for a fuller picture of what's going on there. And the river of fire was flowing, coming from his presence. There's a picture of purity. Uh, cherubim are the fiery ones, fiery angelic beings that are going out and doing his bidding. Fire is not always bad in Scripture. It's this picture of glory and purity and cleansing. In verse 13, it says, And I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming on the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days, was escorted before him. And he was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now notice, he's talked about four real kingdoms. He's talking about four kingdoms that will actually be on the earth. He's talked about things that you and I can see and touch. 
He doesn't all of a sudden change to something separate and spiritual. He sees something in heaven where a decision is made that is about to impact the earth. The rise of the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one that is separate from but equal to God. None of the other creatures can come into his presence. But here is this one that is brought by others before God. And he is receiving from the Most High the right to rule and reign. They together decide what's about to happen on earth. He comes in the clouds. Uh, just put in your, in your own Bible. Uh, take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4, same description. Revelation chapter 19, same description. Only we find out there that the clouds are angelic armies and all of the believers who have put their faith in him through the years. So many people, it looks like clouds. He's given a kingdom and his holy ones reign with him. God looks at what's going on on the earth. He sees this arrogance. He sees the destruction. He sees that for three and a half years, under the guise of peace and safety, man is actually living in horrifying circumstances. Constant fear. Only being dominated. Only being controlled by those on the outside. Only being told what to think and told what to believe. Absolutely no joy on the earth underneath this arrogant leader. And God looks down on the earth and says, that's it. Jesus, go take care of it. And it says it's a kingdom that will not pass away. He comes, he sets things right, and he says, hey, all of these guys who've gotten to take a taste of heaven with me, they're going to show you how we really act back home. And he puts things right. Is this believable? I just want to remind you, and this is just a side note, it's not in... Uh, your notes, I don't believe, but in Acts chapter 1, Jesus actually said, I'm coming again. I came the first time just like I said. I fulfilled prophecy just like I said. But in Acts 1, verses 4 through 11, it says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Wait for the Father's promise, the Ancient of Days, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Notice their anticipation is that all these things we've been talking about are actual things that are going to happen. Jesus doesn't correct them. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or period that the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't say, oh, you guys, don't you understand? That's never going to happen. It's all spiritual. He doesn't say that. He says, you don't get to know when that happens. You focus on this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. Folks, he's coming back. He's coming back. And he's going to put all of these things right. So the terrifying pictures and the terrifying beast and the terrifying angry arrogant horn are for us to be aware that we need to make sure and tell the world what is going on.
What happens? I want you to uh, get ready for Lord's Supper with this thought. It, it says here that there was a result to this in Daniel's life, and he was terrified. One verse. It says at the end of the account, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. And my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Why does Daniel turn pale? Well, because Daniel hasn't read Daniel 8 and 9 and 12 yet, all right? He's terrified because he has sympathy. By the way, Daniel is wired like Jesus. Only he and Joseph uh, in all of the Old Testament, there's nothing negative said about them ever. No correction from the Lord. He's wired like Christ. When he sees these terrifying things that are happening to people, it actually terrifies his soul, not because he's afraid he's going to lose. He's terrified because he has sympathy on those who don't know. He's terrified because he sees that a bunch of people, without knowing what is about to happen, are going to be overwhelmed, and they're going to flee, and they're going to run from God rather than to him. He's terrified because he thinks these things will literally happen, and they do. Those kingdoms, those first kingdoms that he could not have known about by reading the newspaper, actually came to pass. That final indistinct kingdom that's going to rise out of the ashes of the old Roman Empire, that is yet to come. Jesus says so. But Daniel is terrified. What do we do about that now? The scriptures tell us that we're actually supposed to take a moment on a regular basis as a church and we're to prepare our hearts because Jesus said that he's coming again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, it gives us the, the ordinance that we're supposed to follow, the Lord's Supper. But it tells us before we celebrate the return of Christ, before we celebrate uh, this Lord's Supper and we look back on what Jesus did and look forward to his coming, that we're supposed to do something. It says, so whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the sin of the body and the blood of the Lord. It says we're actually to stop, examine our own hearts and say, Lord, have I been living for you today? It says, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, without recognizing first what's going on in your own heart and recognizing what's happening in the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. It says, actually, you can offend God by not getting this right. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that, look at this, verse 32 we might not be condemned with the world. Well, when is he talking about? He's using language that's picked up out of Daniel chapter 7 where he talks about there is a time when God will judge all of humanity. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to put a stop to it. He says, you, believer, are not going to be a part of that judgment. But that doesn't mean that you can just live whatever way you want. Right now, God is asking you to live in a way it says, I, I am focused on Jesus and living like him. And so I'm going to ask you, when you hear these terrifying things, does your heart run to Jesus? Have you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone? If so, we're going to invite you to participate with us in taking the Lord's Supper. If you do not have one of these, uh, if you did not get one on the way in, I just want you to raise your hand and the men will get those to you. Uh, I'm going to step off the stage here just for a moment and uh, the guys are going to get our hearts ready uh, with a song, but this is what I, I want us to, 
do I want us to actually take a moment to say, Lord, in, in light of all of these things, will you make my heart ready to see you face to face? If there's something that's going on in your life right now that you know does not please the Lord, that's getting in the way of your fellowship with him, confess it. Let him take it. Be free. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, you would help us, even right now, uh, that you would help us to take these elements in a way that puts you on display. Help us to glorify you. Father, we thank you that in the midst of uh, profound words that come from Scripture, even moments that could be terrifying, that you uh, have called us not to be afraid, but to trust you. Father, I do pray that you'd help us to investigate our own hearts. If there is anything between us and you, help us to confess it and walk away today knowing that the moment we confess it, you have forgiven it and we are clean. Make us ambassadors for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner joy through the air.
Just uh, orient yourself with this cup and juice here, and uh, we start with the bread. So open that side there, and uh, this moment is a moment of not just reflection, but also victory. Paul is writing here, and he tells us what we are to do. It says this in Scripture, For I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you flip that over and open up the juice, the scripture goes on and it says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture declares, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a proclamation of victory. Amen? He is coming again, that is a guarantee, and we can celebrate that. Go ahead, AJ. So let's sing. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore.
Now I know what you're thinking. The next time we do these songs, we need to have sawdust on the floor in a tent, right? So we'll do them again sometime. Today, we should be rejoicing, believers, because we're on the side that wins. Amen? If you are not sure about your relationship with Christ today and you would like to be, I'd love to pray with you this morning. If you're just working through some stuff in your life and you're saying, man, I don't think that I'm ready to see the King of Kings, we'd love to pray with you. But for the rest of us, we should be rejoicing as we go and tell the world there's an answer to this mess. Amen? Let's celebrate as we go. You're dismissed.